0: and welcome back to the Sound Mind podcast. We're going to be continuing our exploration into compassion, specifically into compassion and artistic leadership today. I have an excellent guest joining me, Erica Bondareff-Raypatch, who is currently the Acting Executive Director at the Clarice Smith Performing Arts Center. At the University of Maryland and Erica has been involved at the Clarice in various capacity for the past 13 years. Hi Erica, how are you?
1: I'm good. How are you Dan?
0: I am doing just well. I'm on vacation so I'm doing better than usual.
1: <laughs> this is what you do on vacation?
0: Yes. Yeah, no.
1: I don't know we may need to talk about that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know I, I enjoy I enjoy what I do for Sound Minds so it's uh, it's not I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it work. I'd call it fun.
1: (laughs) Well, it's interesting you say that. Um, I have, you know, there's a lot of discussion I think in this field of the arts and creative expression about work-life balance. And I think what's interesting about that is balance implies something is out of balance. And I Mm -hmm. think that creates sort of a dichotomy that can be challenging if people uh, feel like they're doing one of the things like work too much that life is out of balance. And I have, Um, thought a lot over the years about this. And my sort of suggestion is um, thinking about work-life integration (laughs) and Uh, this idea that as we work in this field, which I, and for me, as I, when I say the field, I sort of, I mean, arts administration or connected to the arts and and sort of creative practice. Um, Often people are in it because they love it, because they have some sort of connection to the arts, um, and what they do because we're often mission driven organizations. And so there's this sort of personal connection. And I think it's interesting to think about, um, integrating versus creating this sort of like one thing's good, the other thing's bad. Um, and so it's interesting when you say that working on the podcast is something you enjoy that it might actually feel less like work is, is sort of right in line with that. And, and it certainly doesn't mean I'm suggesting that, um, you know, uh, you never, one never stops, one actually never goes and sits on the beach or hikes in the mountains or does whatever they need to sort of actually feel like they're um, maybe recharging. But I do think that mm-hmm. this integration idea can help um, with sort of uh, how people approach their jobs. But it does mean creating boundaries, which I think is the practice that gets challenging. Is like when you actually are able to, how you do step away. And frankly, defining what you need for self-care so that you do get the rest that you deserve. I mean, it doesn't feel like you're working all the time, but anyway, it's, if you know, I, this is, so this is interesting that you're telling me you're on vacation, but you're doing this podcast with me today. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's an interesting place to start a discussion because a lot of people in the music field have been called for lack of a better word to the mm-hmm. music field. And in fact, we had a conversation, I had a conversation with, Adrian Thompson, who was talking about if this is not something that you're absolutely passionate, like absolutely 100% all in on doing, then you should probably do something else. That being said, yeah, I think it's interesting that you bring up the topic of work-life balance and how that implies that there, there is some imbalance going on, because I think a lot of us tend to attach we don't hold our practice very loosely we sort of attach and identify with a lot of things that happen in our workplace Mm -hmm. absolutely so for example this is also really interesting because the other thing we're investigating in our podcast this season is practice Hmm. and so we're having similar discussions on that side about like what happens if you totally mess up in a concert does it keep you up at night and it does for for many professional musicians who take their craft very seriously so it's hard to let go of that attachment and that's something that we're discussing and trying to figure out ways of how to do that how to have that balance
1: well it's the so i think the attachment question is interesting and you've touched on a lot of things that are very that resonate with me first the passion piece i think This is exactly right. I think arts administrators as well, which is, again, how I identify. And I, as you mentioned, I've been at the Clarice for 13 years, but I've been in an acting executive director role now for two years. And so I am sort of I feel in that role very much responsible for the team of 45 ish um, arts professionals, artistic Mm -hmm. administrators who report up to me and and sort of um, and rely on me for leadership and guidance and vision and Passion is such a part of our conversation because our staff is very, very passionate about what they do, and a lot of um, our staff have come out of an artistic practice. I, I'm a violinist by hobby, a classically trained violinist, and I sort of I also think of arts administration as my calling. It was my way to come to the field when I knew that I didn't wanna work as an artist professionally, but I wanted to stay connected to the field. And so the idea of arts administration was really appealing. And I will say that over the years of talking to arts administrators, and I actually teach in an arts administration graduate program that I'm, a, I'm an alumni of. And so I talk to people about this field a lot. And very often it goes back to some sort of childhood connection to the arts or even a mm-hmm. young adulthood or young adult, like the arts have been in their lives, maybe even as a practitioner, And then they sort of move into this administration role because they are passionate about art, but they've somehow figured out they they don't or can't or won't work as an artist professionally. This is another way to stay connected. But I think the danger in the word passion is that it can almost by definition imply too much (laughs) or like taking over. And so I think this is where we have to be a little careful about while we can be passionate about something that can't, I don't think that can become an excuse for not identifying ways that you need to step away from that passion to recharge because I don't know if sort of staying mired in it, even if you're passionate about it all the time is the the healthiest thing to do because I think we all need different headspaces right different things we do to, to disconnect but but I think passion is what holds us together in a lot of ways so the same I think these same ideas apply to sort of the the administrative side of this of this field and mm-hmm. Um, how we show up at work and how we create those boundaries so that we can um, enjoy it. But it's still work right at the end of the day. Like this yeah. is the thing is that while you enjoy that, I think is the, this is why it's so it's such a, um, I think sort of a, there's something beautiful about it because while it it's still work like we still have to I still have to get up and come into an office at this point every you know Monday through Friday and do certain things I have to attend meetings I have to write emails I have to make decisions that's all work I could be doing something else right I have to be doing this because of my responsibility but I think what's amazing about this is that I do enjoy it so I'm not someone who goes to a place that's of work every day and is just can't wait to get home because I can't stand anything I'm doing all day and I think that's also There's something really beautiful about that. But it still is work. (laughs) So I think figuring out what fun means has to sometimes be separate from work.
0: Yeah. Yes. And, you know, we work in a field where fun and work are so close, (laughs) right? Fun and work are so close or are the same. And, um, yeah, again, how do you have that boundary? I heard from a friend very recently that she got into a practice of after a concert, she would go into the practice room and practice all of the things that she messed up during the concert and then would go to the after party, which I think was a little brutal when I Sounds heard like that. Something like
1: punishment, honestly. It's yeah. a little bit like her purgatory or her punishment. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Or penance. Penance.
1: Um, yeah. Maybe that's a better word.
0: But it seems like, like I understand it. I totally understood where she was coming from. Like, You know, you have a moment where you, you identified exactly what you could not do in your job and you're making an effort to improve that. But, oh boy, it sounded just sounds just miserable to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I could see parallels between. So it sounds to me and I I would agree that what I'm hearing you say is that artists have this sort of desire or this expectation. And I'm not sure where it's coming from, but to be perfect. Right. That you don't make mistakes. There's this sort of valuing of perfectionism and that. Absolutely. Because, you know, and I think in some ways it's a reflection of the fact that artists take their work very seriously. And so they therefore want to be perfect. And perfect is sort of held up as the goal, the ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways there's a lot of parallels. With leadership, I think leaders are often assumed that they're perfect, right? That there's this idea that the best leader or a good leader or a great leader is never makes mistakes or is perfect. And I think I would actually suggest in both of those instances that there's something about imperfection that I, I think it, it humanizes all of us. I think, and this is one of the practices I do as a leader, is I am very much into demonstrating as much as possible that I am human <laughs> and that humans make mistakes. I think it can be disarming for my colleagues to know that I not only make mistakes but I recognize when I make the mistakes or I'm open to having others tell me that I've made a mistake and and you know so but I do think that there are the similar kinds of pressures on leaders as there are on artists to sort of live in this world of perfectionism and I you know I don't know I don't know if that's healthy <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure it is <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's very really interesting. So you work with a team of leaders, a team of artistic leaders, yes? Correct. Yeah. So how, how do you go about encouraging them to strive away from perfection, to identify and embrace the humanness in all of us?
1: I mean, yeah, it's an ongoing thing and I'm certainly not suggesting I've mastered it. I would say one way that I try to do that is what I what I was saying is that I try to model it. Right. So I I think there's something, again, disarming or um, um, that opens people up if I am able to admit fault um, and if I'm able to do that um, regularly (laughs) and honestly. And um, so it's almost modeling that behavior so that others feel comfortable, um, you know, with, with error or with mistake. Um, I also, you know, I, um, I have found in my career that if there is something that happens, that's a, you know, called a mistake or leads to has consequences that are, you know, make someone else's job problematic or make, um, you know, because we're all connected, right? So our work is all very interconnected and collaborative. I have found that really, just having a conversation with the person about the quote unquote mistake. You know, it sounds simple, but it actually can be harder to practice than you might think because sometimes, and actually it's about having that conversation in fairly close proximity to the mistake happening so that it's just a very in the moment thing. And it's, but I think it's about having a conversation that is more about curiosity and asking the person sort of what happened versus accusatory Mm -hmm. or judgmental. Um, And again, these all, I feel like, this all sounds very simple, but I have found in my years of also having my own bosses and sort of living in a professional environment, that these are things that supervisors and leaders don't always practice. (laughs) And so, you know, and so things fester, right? And it's like, it's like, it's like any sort of relationship. I mean, these are all relationships, ultimately, right, that I have with my staff. And so in taking care of those relationships, It's about exercising the same things you might do in your personal relationships, which is honesty, telling someone when you're upset with them or telling someone when you're disappointed in them instead of waiting and then letting everything. You've probably been in a situation in your life Mm -hmm. where you wait and wait and wait. And then like one little it's like that straw that breaks the camel's back. But it's like actually you're upset about the 16 things that have happened over the last (laughs) two months or something. So I think it's about sort of addressing in real time and in the moment and having conversations but coming at them with humility and openness and again showing that i'm also imperfect i mean and i might go so far to say as we at the clarice particularly right, right now are actually and it's hard because we are l- like you all we are very ideally minded but trying to have imperfection be a value to some extent mm. and that's challenging right i mean because it it doesn't nobody wants to compromise the quality of our work but i think even just having a conversation about what would it look like if imperfection was okay, can maybe help with mindset and anxiety around perfection. But I don't know for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, I really, really like that idea. That's, that's very interesting. And I think definitely worth exploring. Yeah, yeah, we definitely live in a world, and particularly in an industry where perfection is the ideal. Or, you know, if at a certain level, perfection is expected. Not only ideal but a minimum. Uh and there's not a lot of room for imperfection or there's not a lot of understanding around imperfection. So I think that's very interesting and I think it's very awesome that you're working on that with your staff. Um how when you encounter something in your work at the Clarice. Mm-hmm. And you need to guide a situation. Maybe you're addressing a mistake that happened, or you're seeing a direction that one of your staff members or, or some part of the organization is going in, and you'd like to redirect it, you'd like to re-guide it. How do you go about addressing that? I'm seeing, I'm avoiding using words like problem and mistake <laughs> and error. Yeah. But how do you go about leading the group away yeah. from that and to a new direction?
1: That's an interesting question, and I think I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of turn it on its head a little bit and say that one of the I want to say best lessons I've learned as a leader, and I don't mean to that to imply that I've like nailed this, but one of the things I have learned in leadership roles, and and particularly I'll say being in a leadership role, you know, I've been an acting executive director at the Clarice for the last two years, which is essentially during a period of crisis for our field. So yeah. I've been leading through crisis and through a lot of change and shifting sands and um, a lot of ambiguity, as you all, as you know, from what it's been like to sort of live with COVID and now alongside COVID as it sort of moves to an endemic. But what I would say is one of the things I've learned about leadership that I that I value is that um just when you think you know the right way to do something, like that you want to redirect something because you think you know how it should go, um, General, there are often times where if you are able to have a conversation with either the person or the team of people that are sort of going in this direction that you don't want them to go, so to speak,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: if you are able to have a conversation that comes from a place of curiosity and questioning and um, asking and then listening versus sort of coming in and saying, you know, being defensive or coming off as like immediately um, assuming that, you know, the best way I've been amazed at how many times when I can come to a conversation that way, that I realize that the people or the person that I'm concerned about the direction they're taking is seeing the situation very differently than I am. And therefore that is informing their decisions. And so then I'm sort of left with the question Um. What's the right answer here? Because you're just because it becomes very clear that they're seeing the situation very differently,
0: almost as if they're acting on their best judgment from their Correct. perspective.
1: Right. And who am I to say that, like, my judgment is better? And I actually think this is part of what is challenging about leadership. And I think we default and I don't mean you, but I think just sort of leadership as a as an idea there's often, I, I think it's unfortunate when the default is that the leader always knows best because I, mm-hmm. we're also human. I'm also just a person.
0: <laughs> I mean, <laughs>
1: yes, I have a certain amount of experience doing these things. And yes, I, I've probably built skills over the years on how to be a leader, be a leader, quote unquote. But um, I do think that um, it is not really my place I mean, unless we're talking about really egregious things, but I don't think that's what we're talking about. I mean, I think we're talking right. about sort of, I mean, there are definitely things in the workplace that are you, that are wrong, <laughs> that are sort of clearly wrong. But I think you and I are talking about more nuanced things, right? Like decisions yeah. about a direction to go or a strategic idea or a, a, dis, a choice, a decision. And I do think that trusting that others' judgment um, and being open to sort of deciding that maybe your way is not, you maybe there's another way. And I, I have, you know, I, I, one of the things I say to my staff, which is hopefully tries to get to this a little bit is that I'm here to support your decisions as your boss or your supervisor or your manager or whatever, as as your, as the leader, I'm here to support your decisions. Even if they're decisions I wouldn't have made, as long as I understand your thinking, like I can't, I need to sort of have some context, but that Mm -hmm. if you arrive at a different decision, um, And that's hard because, you know, I like to get my way just like everybody else, you know, so I could be uncomfortable with that decision. But if I can sort of follow your logic or understand your reasoning or see the perspective or the lens, like you said, you see it through the way you've judged the situation, then that's a valid decision. And one of the other things I say to my staff (laughs) is I actually think. Leadership can be demonstrated at every level of the organization. So we, of course, at the University of Maryland and at the Clarice are in a very hierarchical environment because we're part of a massive institution, right? We're part of we're mm-hmm. a performing arts center nestled in a college, in a university that is a state university that is part of the state of Maryland. I mean, it is. We are like in this what what is sort of quintessential <laughs> bureaucratic, higher you know administrative environment. So there are a lot, we we have a very specific org chart. We have levels of positions, you know, coordinator, manager, associate director, director. I mean, we're very, and I am constantly, and it's hard because that's, we are, our systems are set up to be very hierarchical, but I am very interested in fostering and cultivating in the staff that they can demonstrate leadership as a coordinator, right, which is sort of the entry level role. The leadership in that job might look different than the leadership the executive director shows, but there there are ways to demonstrate leadership within this the the sort of scope of your job, and that's uh, that's something i'm I'm interested in cultivating, and so therefore, I can't then also create an environment where my decision is always the right one because then nobody has has any agency right There's no agency at every so so yeah maybe that answers your question, but I think maybe the short answer is I don't, I am finding there are fewer and fewer times where I am categorically trying to redirect staff to something that I want to do. But what's interesting is if I ever get to that point, I have to be clear because now I've built sort of a reputation that like my, I've actually had conversations with, with my staff where I say, I'm in this conversation just as a colleague. I'm taking my executive director hat off because obviously my title carries some implied power and authority. authority, right? And I have I've had a couple of instances where I forgot, I didn't think to say I'm just in this conversation as a colleague. And so then there's this assumption that if I say something or I express an opinion that it's a directive. I see right? Because I've said it, I've said it. as oh, how it is. Tricky. Yeah. And it, and, and I've, so I've learned that it's, it's, again, it's kind of a simple idea, but that if we're in a conversation, if I'm in a conversation with colleagues of multiple levels, like varying levels, I have to really say, I'm here as a peer. Basically. I just want to participate in this conversation, but my opinion, it doesn't hold extra weight just because I'm the executive director. Mm-hmm. Um. The flip side of that is if I do need to make a decision that I have to be like, no, I'm actually, this is actually a direction. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. This is actually not negotiable. And that's, yeah. a little, that's a little hard. And I don't find myself in that position very often, but it has come up, particularly with COVID when we've had to make some tough calls and, you know, about safety and about like, you know, um, process and procedure. And so I've had to be clear that, you know what, I've heard all of the pers- perspectives and I'm actually now going to make the decision.
0: Right. I see. I want to talk about the team dynamic in those moments. Uh, When you have a meeting where one half of the room agrees with you and the other half of the room disagrees with you and you have to or whatever it is. Yeah. And you have to make a decision. What is the team dynamic fallout like? What is the team? You know, I mean, maybe it's another question of balance. Maybe it's another, hey, this isn't personal. This is just we have to do our
1: jobs. Yeah. But
0: what does that look like to you?
1: Well, um, so I will say at the outset, we're still practicing this, right? I mean, this is not something, again, we've mastered and we've hit some pitfalls. But I will say that back to your comment about balance, I would say that one of the other things I really encourage the staff at the Clarice to do is show up as their full selves so that there's not this like separation between um, you know, who they are at work, quote unquote, and who they are sort of outside of work. Um, And obviously, that's within reason. I mean, people are allowed to have and should have personal lives. But what I mean is that, that they are able to bring their full selves, their values that they've that, you know, come from their may have nothing to do with their career or their job. But I want them to sort of show up in the room that way and be this integrated person, right? They don't have to like, Play a role at work that is different than who they might feel like they truly are. So mm. that I think hopefully helps create an environment for authentic conversation. Um, but yes, I mean we have I think and to your point about personal, we're not taking it personally. We actually this is something we are learning as almost <laughs> we are almost using as a at a mantra as a mantra at the Clarice, which is we have to remember when we have these conversations about decisions related to work, that at the end of the day, it isn't personal. Like this is not an attack on if somebody disagrees with me, Erica, that it's nothing against Erica, the person. It's just that this is a difference of opinion. So sometimes even just stating that is helpful. You know, this is not personal. Here are my, here's my opinion. Um, I will say just in terms of decision-making, um, and none of this is sort of formalized we don't i mean we we t- we have tended in the past we've had times in our history and since i've been here a while i've sort of watched this through different sort of iterations of staff and different leadership and that you know kind of the executive director has been looked to as the final say in things or the sort of um that the executive director could like almost overrule any decision if, if need be, or change a decision. Mm-hmm. I've actually really been trying to shift that. And um, one of the very small ways I've done that, that I just will try to explain briefly is that, you know, we have a team of people who um, curate our season, right? Think about the artists that we're going to partner with to present on our stages. And in the past, this executive director role has very much operated as more in addition to an executive director as sort of an artistic director, meaning they have been the sort of the the, the final say on artistic decisions. Like, you know, the, there was a team of people that would work on getting to know artists and talking to artists about projects, but sort of everything ultimately ran up to the executive director as like a
0: rubber stamp moment
1: yeah, or, or not sometimes not rubber. Sometimes, Oh no, we're not going to do this or, you know, changing things. I have removed myself somewhat from I've, I've, I've tried to remove the artistic direction part of this job. And I've created a team of six people who are thinking about curation. Um, they are um, three of them are directors and three of them are coordinators. But the idea is that they are they are learning. We're learning this all together how to work in a shared leadership model where they all practice decision making together and they don't if there is disagreement, they don't come to the executive director to like adjudicate the decision. They mm-hmm. have to figure out amongst themselves, um, how to come to a decision. And I think part of that is defining how decision making is made, like what are our values, so that it doesn't become personal, right? It's not like let's we don't want to do this artist because we don't like the person who told brought it to us. We we have a we're starting to figure out like how do we articulate why we work with a certain artist, and those become the um, those become the Measure or the ways we gauge whether we're going to make a decision one way or the other. So I hope that example sort of demonstrates this idea of moving to less from executive power. I guess I don't know what the word is to more of like a consensus building model where you're kind of working together through conversation, disagreement um, to see if you can come to consensus, or if it's it's okay if we don't come to consensus, but that. Some people are okay that every decision that is made may not, they may not agree with everyone, but we have a way to like articulate why we've made that decision that are based on organizational values.
0: Right. Sounds like a great, uh, collaborative, uh, experience and collaborative process. Uh, and yeah, (laughs) yeah. You know, I'm, I'm thinking as I'm hearing you talk about this, I'm hearing, I'm thinking a lot about, um, collaborating in like an orchestra and i have an opinion on how this piece should go and the conductor has an opinion on how this Mm -hmm. piece should go and the person sitting next to me has an opinion and i might say oh this person's taking it too slow oh this person's (laughs) taking it too fast oh i want my my drum solo to be longer whatever it is um
1: it's a great analogy because actually when we talked about this model in the beginning, I have a I have staff members who are also classically trained musicians, colleagues like I am, and they use the same analogy. They're like, this sounds like kind of an orchestra with a conductor versus chamber music, where, you know, to sort of play the metaphor out where mm-hmm. the group is charged. There isn't one person who's standing at the, you know, on the podium waving a baton, but that the group is charged to work together to create the music kind of in a more collective Environment, yeah,
0: Yeah. and so I think this whole conversation is really speaking to compassion in the collaborative space, right? Uh, We I don't know that we've said the word compassion a lot, uh, but really that's just what I'm hearing is how we are working together compassionately um, Mm -hmm. as full humans, as full as whole people, and not personal grievances to get the best of us and how to move through moments of strife and things like that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the, I think, although you're right, I don't think, I think that was the first time we said the word compassion, but I feel like some of the characteristics of a work environment we've talked about support this idea of being compassionate. And I think this idea that you just said of showing up as your, I mean, we are all people mm-hmm. <laughs> at the end of the day that are, that are imperfect and that are, That all have valid perspectives and experiences. And I think, sort of, creating an environment where all of that is valued to some extent is compassion.
0: Absolutely. That's what I was going to say. I mean,
1: I, I don't know if that's the dictionary definition, but that's how I interpret compassion is that there is a sense of humility and openness and sharing and it's like seeing each other for who you are there's some there's something about that that's mm, passion yes right?
0: like yeah. i completely accept you and your fullness right and who you are and what you stand for and what you're going to fight for on this particular issue whether right. i disagree or agree with you or not i completely accept whatever that is
1: right and see it as valid right and valuable to the conversation that is operating from a place of compassion
0: Yes. I think this has been a really great conversation about compassion and leadership, compassion with ourselves in the practice room and with our Mm -hmm. trade. But it's really awesome talking about compassion and collaboration and compassion as part of a team in this conversation. So I want to thank you so much for sitting down with me today and talking about this.
1: You're welcome. It's been a pleasure.
0: Hi, listeners. It's Zane Carnes, your friendly podcast editor here be sure to follow or subscribe to the Soundmind podcast to be notified about future episodes. And you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at sound Mind musician to stay in the loop on our podcasts, social hours, and group updates. May is mental health month and also marks the start of our 2022 spring fundraising campaign. By giving a tax deductible donation to Soundmind, you can make our programming and community building on classical music, mental health possible. Information on how you can support our organization can be found at soundmindmusician.org or on social media. You can follow our efforts and SoundMind stories throughout the campaign under the hashtag one story at a time.